and at that very time, they brought in the real-time ultrasound machines. And when I saw the moving images of the fetus on the screen, I said, that's it. I'm not interested in the revolution in Latin America or apartheid in South Africa. This is what I want to do in my life. And that's it. A thousand questions were raised in my head. What is the relationship between the fetus and the mother? How does the fetus grow? How do things go wrong? Can you do anything in utero to improve the condition of the baby when things are wrong? And that's it. Hello and welcome to the second season of Conversations in Fetal Medicine, a podcast that hopes to share some of the wisdom and experience of people working in this brilliant field. My name is Jane Curry. I'm a consultant in obstetrics and fetal medicine. Think about the coffee room conversations you enjoyed with a trusted mentor. There are some great educational materials out there, but as a trainee in fetal medicine, this was the kind of thing I really wanted to listen to for inspiration and motivation when times were more challenging. To be honest, I find it just as interesting as a consultant. We hope to speak to a range of people, some of whom you might have heard of, perhaps even your fetal medicine heroes, but also some people whose names you don't know, as it's not just about niche medical celebrity, although I do love that too. Well, there is niche medical celebrity, and then there is Professor Kipros Nicolaides. Professor Nicolaides, aka Kipros, is one of the pioneers of fetal surgery, and his discoveries have revolutionised the field of fetal medicine. He's the founder and chairman of the Fetal Medicine Foundation, which he set up in 1995. They've donated more than £45 million to finance the training of doctors from around the world and carry out major multi-centre research studies in fetal medicine. The Fetal Medicine Foundation also organises the yearly World Congress in Fetal Medicine, which is attended by more than 2,000 participants from all over the world. Professor Nicolaides has authored over 1,500 peer-reviewed journal articles, more than 30 books, and has the highest H-index of any obstetrician and gynaecologist in the world. He's provided training in fetal medicine to over a thousand doctors from over 50 countries. But if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know who he is already. So this is very exciting. Today I've got the absolute pleasure and honour of speaking to Professor Kipros Nicolaides. Hello, Professor. Thank you. So normally I ask people to tell me about how they got into what they do now, how they got into fetal medicine. And I'd love to hear that story from you. Like many of the things that I got involved with, I think it happened just by accident. I was a medical student in the 1970s, and the last thing in the world that I was interested in is physics, chemistry, biology, pharmacology, (laughs) history, and anatomy. It's before your time, but the 1970s were incredible. It was an incredible decade. We had uh, a lot of dictatorships, right-wing dictatorships, directed by the CIA in the whole of Latin America. And the great British leader, the great Democrat, uh, Margaret Thatcher, was referring to the guy that has his statue now opposite the House of Parliament, uh, Nelson Mandela, as a terrorist. And the ANC was a terrorist organization. So I was actively involved in left-wing politics. We were spending a lot of time in demonstrations, political activism. And I used to turn up for the last three months before each year study a bit so that I can just scrape through. <laughs> and then I was coming to the end of medicine and I didn't have any idea whatsoever as to what I wanted to do. But I think sometimes an event happens in life that changes you. And that, that event is called a lecture. There was a great professor from Glasgow, Professor Stuart Campbell. He's in his 
late 80s now, that the story goes he was thrown out of Glasgow because he was so very arrogant that in a woman that had a, a vaginal hemorrhage, he was so intelligent, brilliant, and arrogant that he was doing an ultrasound scan and he said, this is absolutely not placenta previa. And they say that he went on to do a vaginal examination the woman died from a hemorrhage. So they got rid of him from Scotland, but England was very happy to accommodate. A lot of the great professors in England actually have their origins in Scotland, like a lot of the politicians in England. And the reason I think for that is that it is such a miserable place and poor that you need to have a very good educational system so you can escape from Scotland. <laughs> and have Tony Blair, we have Gordon Brown, uh, the leaders of the of the Social Democratic Party. A lot of the people were coming from so program. So he arrived in London. And they combined his brilliance with his dangerousness by locking him up in a room at Queen Charlotte's Hospital with a massive uh, ultrasound machine, the beast scanners. They, they, they used to occupy the whole room and, and they used to, used to move the probe and uh -huh. get a of thin images. And he then described how you could diagnose unencephaly and spinal abuse. And of course, nobody believed him. He arrived at King's. As a young, brilliant professor, and he gave his lecture. And at that time, medical students used to attend lectures. Nowadays, they go off uh, to the pub or know <laughs> disappear because it's 4 30 in the afternoon and they're outside the scope of their uh, day's work. So we were, all went to the lecture. He was so very enthusiastic and brilliant that I was seduced <laughs> by the lecture. So at the end of the lecture, I went to see him. It was the time when people were having their. Uh, Sabbatical. I'm scared of flying. Uh, I find it completely irrational that a big metal box is flying in the air. And while everybody else was going to the Seychelles and uh, Hawaii to pretend that they were learning medicine, I asked him whether I could stay in the department and do ultrasound scans. And at that very time, they brought in the real-time ultrasound machines. And when I saw the moving images of the feeders on the screen, I said, that's it. I'm not interested in the revolution in Latin America or apartheid in South Africa. This is what I want to do in my life. And that's it. I, a thousand questions were raised in my head. What is the relationship between the fetus and the mother? How does the fetus grow? How do things go wrong? Can you do anything in utero to improve the condition of the baby when things are wrong? And that's it. I finished. I, I graduated medicine at King's. I did the, my house jobs, and then I went to work in research, in fetal medicine. This is 1982, and it's incredible because I was a house officer, an SHO, and suddenly everything that we were seeing was a new uh, description, a new scientific uh, paper. So from a, a pathetic little house officer, I was beginning to emerge as one of the fathers of this new field of uh, fetal medicine. Yeah, And from then on, King's was the sort of the mecca of this new field of uh, medicine. At that time, we had uh, Charles Roderick. He was a senior lecturer who went on to become the professor at Charlotte and trained some people that became professors in, um, in Bristol, like uh, Peter Sutkin, who was my research fellow. And then he did his subspect with Roderick. And it's a very incestuous type of relationship. It's a very small group of people that start off from King's and then they spread out. <laughs> Basky was my fellow, Aris Papayoriu, 
a lot of these people started off from King. So if you are interested in this new field of medicine, you you just go there. So from my perspective, I was completely preoccupied by this new field of medicine. There was nothing else that I was interested in. I stopped going on demonstrations. I, I was there Saturday, Sunday, every day, every evening with a team of people who were blah, 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 discussing our findings, writing papers, planning new studies and so on. And that's how we spent the 1980s. It wasn't something that I said, oh my God, I have to work very hard and it's four o'clock in the afternoon and I have to go home or what am I going to do this weekend? It was what I really enjoyed. And that's yeah. what we did. And that, I was lucky, that carried on for the next 40 years. I think <laughs> very few people are lucky now to find a purpose in life and a, a preoccupation so that they, they wake up in the morning and they have something to look forward to. That's yeah. it. That's the story. It's an amazing story. I love hearing that. <laughs> so what is it? What is it that you love about it? What inspires you about it now? Okay, so uh, we are lucky really. I can't stand death. I cannot stand old age and chronic bronchitis, somebody dying in front of your eyes and brings putums and you give them antibiotics, get them better and send them out to be readmitted two weeks later. They are healthy people where things in their vast majority of cases will go well, yeah. even if we screw up. <laughs> by, by default, in 98% of the cases, things will go well. So you have this constant interaction with healthy people that are happy. They're not miserable. They're not dying. They're not complaining only a few times. So it's a nice working environment. Mm -hmm. And then in the few cases where things go wrong, you're lucky because you are in the center of attention where people come to you maybe as a last resort. In the Netflix movie, I don't know if you remember, it was this ex-fellow at King's, uh, yeah. who then became the vice president of the Royal College, Rick Warren in, in Norwich, who told them, there's nothing to be done, but it's a mad guy at King's. <laughs> so I was the mad guy that would try anything. And when the people arrive in these desperate situations, whatever you do, if things work out, then you are a hero. And if things don't work out, in the vast majority of cases, the people are still grateful that you have tried. But that is not always the case. And there were times when there is a contradiction between the hero, the miracle maker, and the devil. Because if things go wrong for some people, you kill their baby. You are, you are a very bad person. And I have had that over the decades. But the vast majority of people, irrespective of whether things go well or not, are grateful. And that is a very nice feeling. Nowadays, I mean, every week I'm receiving messages that make me feel exceptionally old. This is my daughter <laughs> getting married at the age of 32, and you saved her 34 years ago by wow. doing fetal blood transfusions. And I say it wasn't me. It was my father. I am much younger than that. <laughs> <laughs> Extraordinary. I mean, the, well, the, the first case of spinal bifida that we did was a patient who I had treated in utero by giving blood transfusion. She was now 30 years old. And now she gets pregnant and she carries a fetus with spinal bifida. She goes to the hospital and they tell her there is nothing to be done. You can have an abortion. 
And she says, but I want to be seen by this uh, Professor Kipros. And she came to me, and that was the first case that we did, an endoscopic spinal repair. So I I think it's it's an extremely nice feeling to be meeting these people decades later that feel indebted to you. So our patients are healthy. In the vast majority of cases, whatever you do, you give them good news. Mm -hmm. In a few cases where things are disaster, if you do something and things improve, you're a hero. And if things don't improve, again, people are grateful, mm-hmm. except the few that are angry with you. And is there anything that you still find challenging about it? What do you find challenging about fetal medicine? What do you think makes, and I'm sorry for this ridiculous example, <laughs> what, do you think, what do you think makes a hairdresser enjoy her job every day? That she has seen another- People leave job. the salon happy. Exactly. And, and it's the blah, blah, blah. And for me, that is important. So you're doing another 20-week scan and you're going to take a few measurements and everything is all right. It's boring, really, except that the woman may not be boring. So I start messing around. She's there with the husband. What do you do? Where did you find this guy? And then you, <laughs> you, you create a story that is completely against the ethos of the GMC, which says that Doctors should not have any human feelings. They should not have any interactions that have anything to do with that. That could be misunderstood. I say, I don't care really. You cannot not interact with people. You're you're meeting people at an extremely difficult period of their time. And unless within a very, very short period of time, you manage to get their confidence and make a few stupid jokes so that they feel okay with you, Mm-hmm. And then you're about to stick needles into them. Yeah. Well, I mean, they may jump out of the table if everything is very professional and very miserable. But if you are touching them, hold, I, I always get them to hold my arm. I make jokes. I gain their confidence first. And then things go well in most of the cases. So yeah. to me, like the hairdresser, that the pleasure is not and yet another one of the 5,000 hairstyles. But actually, is the head uh-huh. under the hair that you're interacting with. What is this person? What do they do? Uh, are they interesting? Are they boring? Uh, <laughs> what are their expectations in life? And that, to me, is what makes it exciting. Uh-huh. Yeah, I do love that, about the stories of people. And I was really intrigued, the thing where you get them to hold your arm. Yes. I- I mean, clearly it works for you and, um, I and your patients. So I'm cheating. I, I learned that. I, I went uh, once to the United States, despite my fear of flying. I went to New York and then I was driving to Ohio. Ohio is important because there was a very famous professor there, uh, Frederick uh, Zuspan, who was the editor-in-chief of the American General Works and Dining. And I was driving and I arrived there and I had horrible, horrible pain in my mouth. It was, a, what do you call it, a nerve root uh, horrible. So they took me. Thank God I was their guest. Otherwise, I would have ended up paying many thousands of pounds. <laughs> it was interesting because they got a nice-looking nurse to hold my hand. It wasn't. It was so very reassuring. And that was what I did ever since. Uh-huh. There are two reasons why I do it now. And... I taught Basque and all my other fellows, and they're doing the same thing. And I don't like to have the, the cloth on. I, I just like 
naked touching. Okay. The reason is very simple. Before, if you get pain, before you jump, you squeeze your hand. So I had the advantage of a split of a second warning that this woman may jump. So it is personal satisfaction that I know that this woman may jump. That's number one. And number two, the woman herself feels a great comfort by holding you. You are together in it. That even works. Yeah. Ah, it's lovely. Try it. Try it. I, I think I'll have to. While we're on the subject of hands, Lots, lots of trainees worry about what hand they're scanning with, you know, and everyone that you've, you've trained scans a certain way. Um, yes. Tell me about that. So how did that come to rise, the way that you scan? And do you scan with your other hand sometimes? No, I, I'm completely <laughs> incompetent. Um, <laughs> it's very simple, that. Yeah. Uh, it's very simple, really. I am an invasive procedures man. Yeah. And I'm, I'm right-handed. So I sit and the positioning, the, the patient is lying next to me, yeah. and like me, we are facing the, the screen. So that, that helps me with orientation. Yeah. And that is when I'm doing invasive procedures, when I'm teaching people, I say, look, step one, put the transducer on and stick your finger on the, the right side, and you need to show that what is on the right of the patient is on the right of the screen. Uh-huh. So if you're going to put the needle in, you're seeing it coming from the right. You don't put the needle on the right, and then you see it coming from the left. And then you get disorientated. And because I am doing invasive procedures, and unlike many other of my generation, because in the United States, you have a sonographer or radiologist holding the transducer, and then they tell you where to put the needle in, and then you're putting the needle in. They said from the beginning, this is observed. The best way to coordinate yourself is to only have one cerebellum, not to have two <laughs> cerebellums. So it is purely that. Uh-huh. I want to be with the patient. We are together performing the procedure. We are together watching the screen. I am scanning with my left hand because I'm going to use my right hand for invasive procedures. That's all. Yeah, yeah that makes a lot of sense. Now, do you have any idea how many people you've trained? <laughs> There are many thousands of people. I mean, yeah. there are people that I have given scholarships to. Uh-huh. And from the very beginning, with a new cult, I became obsessed with my fear that here was something extremely important. Yeah. And yet, you have to get the right image with the feathers lying in the right position, not hyperextended, not hyperflexed, uh, lifted away from the amniotic membrane so that you don't confuse the amniotic membrane with the new cult. So we established a methodology for accurate measurement of the nuclear transparency. But I knew that if you are not properly trained and you change a measurement from 2.2 by a pathetic one extra millimeter, mm-hmm. you are dramatically increasing the risk for a chromosomal abnormality. And yeah. therefore, a lot of these women will end up having an invasive test and some of them will miscarry. And number two, in some countries, if people are not properly trained and they are not morally uh, practicing medicine, they may send off the patient for a termination. So it became my obsession at that time, my responsibility. I have described something. My preoccupation is not to get rich, is not to get intellectual property, but to establish an infrastructure 
for proper training and certification of people. So free of charge, I was running courses every weekend in London and I was giving them sandwiches and coffee and people were coming from all over. And then I established a method of uh, receiving photographs. We are still receiving photographs from many thousands of people from all over the world, free of charge. And I was telling them, you can have my software for free, make as much money as you want, but let me confirm that you're doing things properly. Uh-huh. So that's how I decided to form the Philomenes Foundation as a mechanism of overseeing this process and also of giving scholarships to people. So I give 80 scholarships to people from all over the world every year. Wow. I, I started in the, in the 90s and some rich Greeks came to me and they said, okay, we will form a fund for you. So they would take me to extremely expensive, pathetic places, the Ritz, to have a dinner with some rich people. And at the end of the dinner, they would get a checkout and give me 2,000 pounds. I'm a peasant from Cyprus. I'm a proud peasant from Cyprus. And I hated that. Uh-huh. I had to tell these ugly people, thank you very much. So I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And they were arranging for me to have meetings. And I used to go to church. And in the church, they used to collect uh, 50 pounds at the end. Or they used to have these meetings in pubs. Uh, we were sorts of alcoholics and get 1,000 pounds. <laughs> I said, forget about it. I'm going to create a charity, the Vitamins Foundation. Uh-huh. We're going to open a, start a, a private clinic that belongs to the charity. And then suddenly we're getting hundreds of thousands of pounds. And they were telling me, thank you. I was not telling anybody, thank you. <laughs> so that was giving me two things, really. It was giving me money to give scholarships to so many people from all over the world. And number two, to support a lot of the research that uh, we were doing. So yeah. I was an outsider from the system. I was never getting any grants to do anything. So I was supporting <laughs> all the research myself. I mean, there's a lot of superlatives you can say about you, but that's one of the many things you've done, isn't that? That amazing infrastructure, the Fetal Medicine Foundation. And I mean, you've built a hospital, right? <laughs> you've trained thousands of people. You've built a hospital. You've got the incredible, the educational resources. Like I know experienced consultants look at the Fetal Medicine Foundation website to double check stuff because it's just perfectly accessible. It's just got the right amount of information that people need just before they see a patient and the patients look at it and there's a lot of stuff you've done. (laughs) That's a leftover from my socialist days. (laughs) I believe that education is for everybody. Uh I believe that it should be the responsibility of academics to pass on their knowledge to people everywhere. There's no point in developing methods for the prediction and prevention of preeclampsia in England where nobody dies of preeclampsia, when every day thousands of people are dying from preeclampsia in Africa, for example. Yeah. So um, yesterday I had a meeting with the ambassador of uh, Zimbabwe, miserable, poor country. The first lady is coming uh, next week. I trained one of the doctors, I gave them 12 some machines, and now she's coming and we will establish a, a major fetal medicine unit there. I have, done, uh-huh. I have done the same with Rwanda. I'm sending people in, uh, in a month to uh, Kenya, uh, Ethiopia. So I'm, I'm trying to, as, as much as I can, to transfer this knowledge for the benefit of people throughout, really. But that's that. <laughs> well, you know, I think it is, it is pretty special. So... 
this is kind of a small detail, I guess. In the, the Netflix documentary, so for anyone listening who hasn't seen it, it's it's really beautiful, I think, piece of work. And I don't know what you thought of it, Professor, but, you know, it, it told a very lovely story. But I was really intrigued, like the patients that your first laser patients and they called you Kipros. And then the patients who are more modern, they called you Professor. Yeah. I'm, and, very, and, important. I'm very important. <laughs> I demanded over the decades that they called me Kipros. Uh-huh. Um, and then as I got older, <laughs> and it was very difficult to impose the name uh, Kipros on my research fellows. Right. They were coming around the presentation, they were calling me prof, and I said, okay, I'm not going to call <laughs> everybody. But you know, it also comes from my background. I, Whenever I see Professor Campbell, he's 87 now, or Professor Robert, if I ever see him. I saw him once in, in the train station in, in Edinburgh. I would only call them professor. Mm-hmm. I, I have this, suppose, my Cypriot background where you, you have this deference from, from your mentor. I cannot call Campbell Stewart or Roderick Charles. I have to call them uh, professor. So I suppose I accepted the title of professor. Yeah. <laughs> so research, I think there's a statistic that you're, is it the most published and most cited person in obstetrics and gynecology it's quite a quite an accomplishment what would you be most proud of what's your best thing in all of that what do you like thinking about well so if we, if we take <laughs> it in terms of the impact yeah uh, the most important impact was in relation to first trimester screening for chromosomal abnormalities uh-huh. and it wasn't really the fact that we improved the detection rate from i don't know 60 with the, with the triple test to 90, to me, it was the military establishment of a methodology which I imposed on an anarchistic, megalomaniac profession. How can you tell Jane Curry, an important consultant in, um, in Bristol, that she has to send photographs every year to confirm that she knows how to measure new processes. Uh-huh. I imposed that on Professor Campbell, and he was very angry with me. He said, Keep on. <laughs> I am your teacher. I said, I know. But because you are my teacher, because you believe in what I am doing, I wanted to send the photographs. And of course, he failed twice. <laughs> so to impose on a medical profession a structure where they have to send photographs every year to prove that they can measure two white lines on top of a black space, that to me was important. It was imposing an infrastructure yeah. uh, so that everybody does things in the same way. I think that more recently, it was the use of the same methodology extended into uh, screening for preeclampsia. And that's my quarrel with the system now. We had a 14-year delay in the introduction of first-semester screening for chromosomal abnormalities between the description of the technique, the acquisition of hundreds of thousands of patients, yeah. And then the system were pissing me off. They kept telling me there is not enough evidence. When if you do a study of a thousand patients, there's a lot of evidence for nice to, to make it an acceptable process of screening. Yeah. And yet here I had done more than 100,000 cases published in The Lancet, and they were telling me there is not enough evidence. And then at the end of the day, it wasn't those miserable bureaucrats that made the change. It was the... 35 to 45 year old journalists, lawyers, was the older professional women that were very, very important now. They did not want to have an invasive test and they imposed 
it, it, so it's, it was a creation of a pressure group that imposed wow. that structure in wow. the system. So there was a, again, from my 1970s political activism, there was science, but the methodology of changing things was also linked with my political activism. I was fighting battles outside the system. They were always thinking that I'm rude, I'm, I'm aggressive, I'm crazy, and all the rest of it. But I, I didn't really care because I believed it was the right thing to do. I'm doing the same now for screening for preeclampsia. We have a method of screening for preeclampsia which is absolutely pathetic. The, the NICE guidelines. It picks up 40% of the case of preeclampsia and you give women aspirin. They have shown for 10 years now that if you incorporate a few more questions and you measure uh, uterine arterial Doppler, mean arterial pressure and placental growth factor, you exactly double the detection rate. It is so evident. Uh, hundreds of thousands of cases I have done. I have a lot of people throughout the world have reproduced the results. Yeah. And I'm not quite sure what, what they're waiting for, uh, just to frustrate me. But I know that sooner or later, the women will impose it on the bureaucrats and they will dissolve in the dustbins of history where they belong. <laughs> Those that are preventing, at the expense of women, uh, the implementation of a proper way of screening for preeclampsia. Do you have time for a couple more questions? Yes. Yeah. So following on from that then, you've set up a lot of new things. So, you know, the fetal surgery and feto and fetoscopic spinal bifida. And how do you set up a new thing like that? How do you get people's confidence and take it and, and make that happen? Okay. This is where madness and decades before are different from how they are now. Uh-huh. If you want to plan a prospective uh, randomized study, we are doing a trial now on aspirin in twin pregnancies. Because there is now good evidence of the effectiveness of aspirin in singletons, but not so in twins. Jane, it was a combination of COVID and incompetence by laboratories, government laboratories, NHS laboratories to produce aspirin and placebo. It took us three years, three years to start. If you if you want to try start a new trial, it will take a year and a half, really, if everything is absolutely perfect to do. So here I was one night in December 1992 with a ruthless, highly intelligent research fellow at the time, Evil, um, who was there from Paris. And he, we had been seeing women coming with severe tutu transfusion syndrome. And they were doing what everybody else does. They did. We used to do an amino drainage. And you just watch these babies die. <laughs> you give paracetamol for somebody with a cancer of the brain. I mean, and then we decided to try something new. Yeah. There were no ethics committees. There were no major structures. We were honest. We found that nice cable from Norwich. We came to meet the math professor. We told them we hadn't done anything like this. There was a rationale in what we were going to do. And at about midnight, we did it. We, we went and we found the fetoscope here <laughs> and, the, and the laser machine there. We went into the operating theater. We didn't really know what we were doing. But we had an idea. And we were yeah. it worked. And then, of course, in the subsequent days, I met with a, an extremely good man, an intelligent man, 
there used to be intelligent people at that time in charge of, of ethics committees. And I met him, uh, Professor Zilka, a neurologist. He's still alive. He must be 90. They said, look, this is what I did. If you want, slap my hands, but give me permission to continue. He said, Kipros, it's good. You should have told me before. I said it was midnight. I didn't want to wake you up. <laughs> he said, okay, just, just write a, some sort of a, a one-page application and I'll give you permission to carry on. That's how it happened, Jane. Yeah. Then we had this 20 years later, this is 1992, 10 years later, Jan de Prez was messing around with rats and, and yeah, those type of animals <laughs> in, uh, in Louvre, developing balloons and, and doing, it was boring really. Every year he was telling us about the balloons and the rabbits and so on. And that's <laughs> so a woman from Cyprus, 45-year-old Mrs. Sophocleus, first pregnancy, infertility, disaster. They diagnosed that the baby had severe diaphragmatic hernia. I trained a lot of people in Cyprus as well. So they rang and they said, look, can you do something? I said, well, I think we can. So I called Jan and I said, listen, come over and let's do it. And if you don't come, I'm going to do it on my own and you'll be a very depressed guy. So he came <laughs> He came with his assistant at that time, who was Edward Gratakos from uh, yeah. Barcelona. They flew over and we did it. I, at that time, spoke to some to somebody in the innovative uh, procedures. But again, right. people were intelligent. People were seeing what we were doing. They knew that we were moral. They knew that we were trying to do something in cases where things were desperate. And they were very supportive. Try the same thing now. Disaster. <laughs> impossible. So this is the blood transfusions, which was my first thing. In the 1980s, I was doing five uh, blood transfusions every week. Now I do one every, wow. six, every six months. Yeah. The condition doesn't exist. <laughs> and, and, and the ones that I do is, I have one ongoing now. It's parvovirus. It's not even recent. Uh-huh. Yeah. But it was a massive problem in the 1980s. I started doing chordocentesis. I had spoken to a Greek guy, uh, not a Greek guy, Daphos in, in Paris, he told me what he was doing. I said, well, okay, fine. I understand. I will do it myself. And I started doing chordosynthesis in the ultrasound department and doing uh, blood transfusions. And that's how we started doing blood transfusions in the 80s. It was a very, very complicated. I don't think we got any ethics committee because approval. Because before that, people were doing uh, ultrasound-guided intraperitoneal uh, transfusions. So right. I went into the umbilical cord. So we just did it. When it came to spina bifida, so we move on now, 1980, blood transfusions, 1990, laser, 2002, uh, FIDO, move on another nearly 15 to 20 years, and we come now to spina bifida repair. I have, have strong views about that, but because I'm very old now, I tolerate opposition from within. In reasons this strain, you have a baby that is conceived normal, and the mother is trying to kill the baby. And if you prevent it from heal- killing the baby, unless we screw up, this baby is going to be born and be perfectly normal. In twin-to-twin transfusion, you have two babies that are all right, and they're killing each other, and you do laser, and if you don't cause severe premature birth, which will trigger off, 
a mental handicap because of the prematurity, not because of the disease, these babies are going to survive and be well. Mm -hmm. In fetal, you have a disaster of severe diaphragmatic hernia where the babies are going to die fine, and now you are converting some of the deaths into living babies. Are those children that survive respiratory cripples? Are they going to spend the rest of their life sitting on a bench in the park watching the other children play and they are miserable, useless individuals sitting there and breathing very heavy? No. If they survive, they will, many will die, half of them will die. But if they survive, they are more or less all right. Mm-hmm. They're mentally all right, they're physically all right. And then people became obsessed with doing more and more things. Yeah. And it takes spinal bifida. So you have a condition where I first described, it was my first breakthrough actually, the lemons and bananas in 1986, or how to predict that a baby has spinal bifida. And we have a distorted brain at 16 weeks. A lot of them have talipids. A lot of them are born and they have weakness or paralysis of the legs, urinary and fecal incontinence, and varying degrees of mental handicap, especially if they need shunts and then the shunts get clogged up and infections and all the rest of it. And we take this condition and we abuse in some respect the desire of a woman to do absolutely everything to save their baby. You can easily manipulate a woman in her desire to sacrifice herself. I will sacrifice myself for my baby. Well done, woman. You're a great sacrifice, heroics. Do anything to save my baby. Mm-hmm. And they save the baby, mostly. And then they're born. And most of them will be weak, or paralyzed in the limbs. They will be incontinent in urine and feces. They will have varying degrees of neurodevelopmental delay. So what have we achieved there? What have we done? What have we done? How have things evolved? Is it the desire of a surgeon, because we are surgeons and we like to mess around, cut the appendix out, do a colectomy, do things so that you feel very heroic? Have we thought through what are we trying to achieve? But, so I said, I'm against this. But then... Martha Santorum, who is a brilliant fetal medicine and endoscopic surgeon, she said, Kibros, you did your things 20, 30 years ago. Why don't you let anybody else do anything? <laughs> I said, okay, Martha, I will let you so that you don't call me an old, stroppy old man. Uh, I will be very supportive. I think it is very important that we tell the people the truth. And I want to yeah. hear you counsel the women that their baby is not going to be normal. If it survives, there's a hell of a chance that this baby is going to have severe handicap of one type or another. We perhaps can improve the outlook for these babies, but we are not curing them. Yeah. And for some women that would in any case continue with the pregnancy, it is reasonable to try everything you can. But it is critically important, Jane, that you don't mess around Mm-hmm. We don't take a woman that would normally want to have a termination. And because of this heroic desire of the woman to protect the baby, we give her a false hope. Sacrifice yourself, woman, and your baby is going to be all right. It is important for them to understand that yeah. most probably that baby is not going to be all right. And Martha is very good at that. Sometimes <laughs> she impresses me that she almost doesn't want to do the procedure in the way she counsels the patients. 
So in that respect, I say, okay, carry on. I paid a lot of money on behalf of the Citizens Foundation to create an international registry so that everybody puts their data together so that we know at least where we are going. So that's the evolution of fetal surgery for me. Yeah. What's next? What's on the horizon? Ah, We are messing around now with something where I am completely against. Uh, So we came for for a brilliant meeting, and I hope sometime in the future, before I die, you will attend the best World Congress of Fetal Medicine. Uh Uh, 20 years ago, when I had the first one, I said, until I die, the price is going to be 380 pounds. And it is now costing me about 500 pounds. We have fantastic social programs, fantastic food. And we have 2,500 people from all over the world. And the people come and they start at 8.30 in the morning and they stay in the room until they die at 10 o'clock in the evening. <laughs> um, we have this discussion. So in that meeting, the young press, the Americans, are very excited now to operate on gastroschisis. Right. So I stood up and I said, I want to declare a bias, a conflict of interest. I'm absolutely and completely against this procedure. Because if we do nothing, Ah, and they started by giving the lecture, they said, in Iran and sub-Saharan Africa, if you have gastroschisis, you die. I said, great stuff. So you are proposing that in the next phase of your trial, we are going to go to sub-Saharan Africa and offer this uh, procedure, yes? In Europe, in the United States, the survival rate from gastroschisis is 95%. Mm-hmm. The reason why babies die is because they have short bowel syndrome, and when you have short bowel syndrome, antenatally, we have a prediction which, call, which is called dilatation of the intra-abdominal uh, bowel. Well, by the time you get this dilatation of the intra-abdominal bowel, almost certainly you have atresias within the bowel. So how do you select the patients for fetal surgery? And it is not a very sensitive method. Uh, more than half of the babies with uh, complex gastroschisis will not have this intra-abdominal dilated bowel, and many of those that have it will not have a complex gastroschisis. So what are we doing? We take a condition where if you leave them well alone, 95% will survive and be well, and in our desire to mess around, we are going to start doing fetal surgery with very poor criteria for surgery. We're going to end up killing a lot of babies through miscarriages, yeah. and you're going to fail. But I, I, I said, this is what I believe. Go ahead, carry on, but keep a record of what you're doing. Yeah. So I think if we look back for 40 years, we are desperately trying to find new indications. Mm-hmm. And more, the more desperate we become, the more controversial the indications become. Yeah. You're anemic. If you don't give a blood transfusion, you die. If you give a blood transfusion, you survive and you're right. You have severe TTTS, if you separate them and they don't die, they survive and they're all right. You have severe diaphragmatic hernia. If you put in a balloon, more than half will die, but the ones that will survive, more or less, they're all right. And then you start talking about spina bifida and now gastroschisis. So the what is next for me is going to be increasingly esoteric uh-huh. in our desire as surgeons to be heroes again. I'm old, so maybe the new generation see things in a different way. (laughs) 
So what is your advice you give to people? Someone said to me, I was asking people, what, what would you ask Kepros Nicolaides if, if you could? And someone said, how, how can I be Kipros? I was like, that's a big ah. question. But what advice do you give to the people that you to train? Be now, they will be struck <laughs> off by the GMC. <laughs> they, they, they will be killed because you are now not allowed to be human anymore. We, we are employees. We turn up uh, and we're from 9 to 4.30 and then we are just like military thing. We cannot deviate. Uh, we have to be like everybody else. Uh-huh. Um, but I think at the end of the day, Jane, I think that people that enjoy medicine, any field of medicine, and they devote their life to it, they will find something that will excite them in that. My daughter, my daughter is finishing medical school this year. Uh, She was seducing me as a child because she knew I wanted her to be a doctor. And then she really (laughs) pissed me off when she turned up at 17 and she told me I want to become a lawyer. I said, what? I want to vomit. (laughs) <laughs> so I said the future of law is genetics because you need to know the language of genetics to be a very good lawyer. I'm, I'm manipulated here. So she did genetics and she got the first class honor. Then she did law and she found it to be as boring as I thought it would be. She did this three years in one. And then she did what I think every medical student should study, an MSc in medical law and ethics, which mm-hmm. I enjoyed. Yeah. And now she's finishing up in medicine. When she joined, the first few weeks, she was very depressed. She said, these doctors are really boring people. There is nothing interesting about them. Now she, of course, has found some people that are friendly. But when I go to give lectures, I try my utmost to get them excited and just see these people there looking very miserable. <laughs> but there are some that get excited. And there will be people that will progress medicine. Yeah. And would make There is no cookbook uh, for becoming keepers. <laughs> go to the Tesco's and buy, I don't know, some bio biological yogurt and become keepers. It's you either feel it or you don't. Yeah. As I said in the beginning, I felt nothing. For me, what was important was social revolution. It was the injustice of dictatorships in Latin America. It was the injustice in South Africa. So I was a campaigner. I have feelings. I have emotions. I'm not a pathetic wimp. I, I get angry. So the same thing <laughs> is what carried me through when I was seduced by a lecture, and then I carried on in that direction. And I'm sure that many people will, will have the opportunity and their own event that will turn them on and stimulate them. So yeah. look out. It will happen. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Right. Well, that's incredibly inspiring and motivating. You've been very generous with your time. I don't want to keep you any longer, um, you. but it's amazing. Thank you so much. Keep well. Well, thank you to Professor Nicolaides. There's not really much I can add except to say what an absolute legend. It was an honour to interview him virtually and we're incredibly grateful he gave us his time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations in Fetal Medicine. I really hope you've enjoyed it. Please get in touch with any feedback or suggestions for future interviewees or topics by email to conversationsinfetalmed at gmail.com or on Twitter or Instagram at fetalmedcast. And if you can, please rate, subscribe and even share the podcast with other people you think might enjoy it. 